Welcome to Table Talk, where we discuss issues of faith, culture, and the church. Here's your host, my dad, Jerry Bertelson. Hello, friends, and welcome to Table Talk. Today, my guest is Dr. Susan Anderson. I've known Dr. Anderson for the past year. I first got to know her as the chair of the search committee at the United Church of Canastota, where I was called to serve last April, and I've served there now for the past nine months. It's been a privilege and honor to get to know her and her family over these past few months. When she's not serving as the chair of the search committee at the United Church of Canastota, Dr. Anderson is a family practice doctor with Sanford Health, serving both the communities of Sioux Falls and Canastota. She's also a faculty member at the University of South Dakota Medical School, where she serves as the Dean of Rural Medicine, the Director of the Frontier and Rural Medicine Program, and is the Chair of the Department of Family Medicine. Today, we will be discussing the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Anderson, thank you for being here today on the Table Talk podcast. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, uh, the first question that I want to ask you is a question that perhaps everybody in the world, or at least the United States right now, is wanting to know, how much longer will this pandemic go on? That is a very good question, and I don't think anyone knows for sure the answer. I think there's been some, you know, positive bits of information, and really what we've learned with with um, this pandemic is that things change on an hourly and sometimes daily basis, uh, how we're addressing things. Um, we have somewhat of a benefit, I guess you could say, uh, in that other parts of the world experienced this prior to us, and other parts of the country has experienced this uh, prior to here in South Dakota. So, you know, lessons learned by them, um, I think, can inform what we do. But as far as saying for sure how much longer this will go on, um, I don't know that anyone can can give a firm answer on that. We know that uh, in New York, for example, um, there are fewer deaths um, the last couple days compared to, you know, previous. Um, they're counting deaths on a daily basis, and so perhaps the peak of the surge in New York is is over. Um, but there's other unknowns. Uh, what's going to happen when we uh, decrease some of the uh, social distancing and limitations that we have right now? Are we going to see a resurgence or another peak? So um, I don't know that we can give a, a firm date or a time frame of how long this is going to go on. Yeah. And, and that phrase that you used a, a few time peaks are, are is, a, is a new phrase in the vocabulary related to pandemics and health for, for a lot of us who aren't in the, the medical um, profession. Can you explain to us what is a peak and how it is, how is it determined and, and why does it move? It seems like almost on a daily basis. Well, for us, 
uh, I would say in the Midwest and South Dakota, you know, the epidemic has not peaked yet. Uh, and really the peak is a, a crucial measure of, you know, the number of active cases. And when that gets to, um, you know, the maximum level and uh, it continues to rise until the number of patients who are either who either die or recover each day is um, larger than the number of new infections. So, um, you know, to ease the load on the healthcare system, um, we've tried to flatten the curve, if you will, by implementing social distancing because social distancing decreases transmission. And so the longer and the flatter the curve, uh, the longer we can avoid overwhelming the healthcare system. So, um, yeah. So, that's, yeah, that's that's helpful um, to, to think about the, the peak, not as just one sort of momentary day, but perhaps something that is, is elongated and is better if it's longer and shorter on the the visual that we've all seen with the flattening of the, of the curve. Um, right. Yeah. So I've, I've heard that in, for example, the Sioux Falls area, the, the peak is, I think right now sometime predicted to be mid May, but the peak mm-hmm. in South Dakota as a whole is mid June. Mm-hmm. So how does that month difference or is it different models that are being used or is it um, just the aggregate bigger number of people, you know, push things out further as a state versus um, a microcosm in a city? Well, really it has to do with, you know, where the population density is and the population density is in Sioux Falls. And so, um, you know, there's going to be um, more transmission because of, you know, the interactions of, among a more densely populated area. Um, thus, they will have more infection and will have it earlier than um, the transmission really to the rest of the state. The other thing that, you know, if people are doing the social distancing, um, Sioux Falls, Minnehaha County, we would anticipate, you know, they're, they're going to approach the peak sooner, more rapidly. And then when they come down from the peak and, and maybe they're um, not doing as many social distancing type um, activities and are more out and about and then on into the state, then, there, then there'll likely be more community spread across the state. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So the, the peak happens in the larger group and then as it begins to go down, it sort of spreads out to the state. Right, right. right. Well, yeah. and, you know, when interventions are lifted somewhat to mitigate perhaps the economic impact, uh, you know, then then there's risk, as I said before, of resurgence and, and perhaps um, spread. And so in some ways, you know, people are viewing the whole Smithfield situation as a mixed blessing, if you will. Uh, perhaps Sioux Falls uh, and Minnehaha County will have their peak sooner um, and the surge sooner. And then as they're coming down from that peak, 
Um, and as it's spreading across the state, when there's need for hospitalization and that sort of thing, perhaps the patients from more rural and remote areas, there won't be um, as high of a demand any longer from Sioux Falls and Minnehaha County for those hospital beds. And and then, you know, the, the second peak that's across the state, those folks can be taken care of in the larger hospitals. So we've all been practicing, should be practicing social distancing, keeping apart as much as possible and, and, uh, and wearing masks and gloves as much as is possible. Um, is it working in the Southeast South Dakota area? I know Smithfields and Sioux Falls has been called a hotspot. Um, mm-hmm. Have the, have the measures been working and, and should we continue them? If they have been, or if they, if they haven't been, should we keep doing, doing those things? Well, some people have said that it, you know, if you do a lot of prep and do a lot of things to mitigate, you're going to be viewed as an alarmist. But if you don't do enough, you'll never be able to catch up. And so I think if you look at what some of the initial estimates were as far as number of infections, number of hospital beds needed, those estimates have gone down. And I think the reason they have gone down is because of social distancing. And since we don't know enough about this virus, and there really isn't a treatment for it, uh, the best way to prevent transmission of infection is um, staying away from each other. And so uh, there's going to be a lot of um, discussion and debate about, you know, did the social distancing work and uh, did we do it soon enough? But I, I don't think that anyone can argue with the fact that if you don't have contact with someone that's infected, you won't get the infection from them. And so um, I, I think for the most part, it is working. Yeah. yeah. So Smithfields has been called a hotspot or Sioux, the Sioux Falls area and I think a couple of days ago it was the number one hotspot in the United States. What, is, what does that mean, hotspot, and how does Sioux Falls have that label removed? So a hotspot means it's the largest cluster or the biggest single source of cases in the U.S. And so when you look at Smithfield, uh, between employees and contacts of those employees, um, that is the majority of, of the cases um, in Minnehaha County and, and actually um, even in South Dakota. So what is happening at this point is mitigation strategies to reopen the plant um, are trying to be uh, determined you know, by um, leadership in the health department Smithfield and the CDC. The CDC was here and visited Smithfield to try to help with that. Now, according to um, the latest discussion from Mayor, um, from the mayor of Sioux Falls, he indicated that um, Smithfield is, is becoming not necessarily the hotspot and community transmission um, is going up and uh, is really going to be the the bulk of the of the cases in Sioux Falls and Minnehaha County. So, thinking of this virus, we had talked about a month ago uh, in another interview when this was new to many of us, uh, more than it is now. 
do we know more about the virus now? A month into it here, at least. Uh, I know it's been since December and perhaps even before that. But do we know more now than we did a month, two, three months ago about the virus? I think we're learning things about the virus as we see how patients are impacted. And, you know, certainly there's uh, research studies uh, that are ongoing about treatment and I, and there's uh, attempts uh, being made to come up with a vaccine. And so I, I think, um, yes, there's a lot of things that are being learned about the virus, but we really just don't know everything that we need to know. And, and some of it is, you know, hypothetical and, um, you know, guesstimates. Um, there's a lot of different figures that you can that you can find as far as how many people that test positive for COVID-19 are actually asymptomatic and will never have signs and symptoms of COVID-19. And then there's individuals that are asymptomatic but are actually pre-symptomatic and will eventually go on to get symptoms. And how many people um, can each of those individuals infect? And so I think we're learning a lot about it, uh, but it's going to take a while to really distill all that information um, and and know everything that we need to know about COVID-19 to effectively, you know, combat it, come up with a treatment, and hopefully come up with a vaccine. So is there a time frame when somebody who is asymptomatic, if they're isolated, you know, the 14 days has been kind of the the, uh, the number that's been, been frequently used. If someone is isolated for 14 days, asymptomatic, can they be around somebody else who is who has been isolated for 14 days and also asymptomatic? Yes, I think they... You know, I, I think they can be around uh, someone else who's also asymptomatic. It all depends on, you know, if, if they test positive, they're asymptomatic, they have to quarantine for 14 days. Right now, one of the challenges is the availability of testing. And, um, you know, that continues to also change a little bit almost on a daily basis of about who can be tested. Initially, um, you know, those being tested were ones that um, either were symptomatic and or had had foreign travel um, within 14 days. Um, other, and then it was really the most sick, um, the folks that were being hospitalized, that sort of thing, they were being tested. Now, if you have contact uh, with someone that is uh, positive, um, folks are being tested. So the availability of testing is still an issue. Um, to try to, you know, determine when people are safe to go back to work or when they're safe to be around others, and then how fast those tests can be turned around. Initially, there, you know, there was some delay in how fast you would get the results back, but now that's gotten much better, and um, you can get results back, you know, the same day at, at certain locations in a, in a pretty efficient manner. So there's been some talk about antibody testing, that's a new phrase mm-hmm. to me. I'm sure it's not to you. Um, what is that? And some have said that that will be the the mechanism that will help to reopen the country when large masses of people are, are tested with an antibody test. What exactly is that? 
so the antibody test uh, will show us if um, you have you've been exposed to uh, the coronavirus to the COVID-19 and now you through your serology through a blood test show that you have antibodies to that virus. Some challenges with that is how to gauge that. Um, depending on your immune system, are you able to bolster an antibody response to exposure to the virus? And so some of those things we don't really know yet um, and how to actually interpret those results. And so yes, there's a lot of discussion about it and a lot of enthusiasm that this might be a way uh, to figure out, you know, who has had the disease and, and who can be safe to, you know, be am, among others um, and not catch it um, or become infected and then, um, you know, not pass it on to others. But as far as protocols for that and, and how to interpret those results, they're still being developed. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's been a lot of talk about those those tests and for people who have who have had it, who have had the virus and have um, uh, recovered from it, um, they presumably won't be able to to get the virus again, and their plasma is able to be used to possibly help others recover. Is that um, something that's happening right now? There are some research protocols uh, using uh, the plasma of individuals that have had the infection and recovered. Uh, because of that very thing about having antibodies um, and then passing that on to someone that um, is infected. And I know there's a protocol that is happening, you know, in the Sioux Falls community um, to give that treatment. Again, these, these are really research protocols uh, to find out if this really works and, um, you know, what impact it has. You know, there, there's concern about the virus mutating, uh, similar to what um, the seasonal influenza virus does every year, and that's why we need a flu shot every year, because there's mutation um, in in the flu. Uh, so we don't know if this is going to be, you know, something that can be used long term, um, or really what what impact those um, donation of plasma from previously infected individuals will have um, to those that are in infected and ill. In thinking about donating plasma um, for those who have been affected and have uh, or have been infected and have recovered, is it safe to donate blood these days? Absolutely, it's safe to donate blood and we really need folks to donate blood because there's still going to be um, motor vehicle accidents and trauma and other things that make uh, blood products um, necessary. And so I know that the blood banks in Sioux Falls have been asking folks, please come in and donate blood because um, they um, are potentially running low uh, due to social distancing and, and patients, um, you know, staying home and not doing some of the things they, they typically do, such as donating blood. A few moments ago, you mentioned that if uh, in the past, if somebody had been out of the country or had been in contact with somebody who had the virus, that they should be uh, quarantined or, or, you know, for 14 days um, that they could be tested as well. Um, what other symptoms 
should we be looking for that might lead us to think that we perhaps might have the virus and might want to call to get pre-screened and possibly tested? Well, the three most common symptoms um, that folks with COVID-19 are seeing are fever of 100.4 or higher, um, shortness of breath, and cough. Of course, there's other symptoms um, such as, you know, body aches and headaches and feelings of, you know, general malaise and fatigue. Uh, But those are the three that we're most commonly asking about, shortness of breath, cough, and temp of 100.4 or higher. So would a person need all three of those usually to be tested or two out of three, one out of three? Not necessarily all three. Um, you know, I, I think it also depends on if the patient is high risk um, and is in a high risk category, such as you know being 65 years of age or older, diabetic, hypertensive, having cardiovascular disease or chronic lung disease. Um, those folks will be um, you know moved up as far as the you know priority of being tested because of their high risk status. And once again, um, I think in our last interview, you had mentioned that if somebody thinks they may have the virus or isn't feeling well or might have flu-like symptoms as as well, the best thing to do is to call your provider before going in. Is that still the the protocol? It is still the protocol uh, because there is drive-through testing available and we don't want ill folks to come into a clinic space and potentially um, be a contact uh, and pass the infection on uh, to someone um, who who doesn't have it, and that's a that's another important thing to bring up is you know contact tracing is of really high importance to contain spread. So if someone becomes positive, you know then they are asked you know who did you have contact with, um, and those folks are contacted to let them know that. Um, you know, they've been around someone that is, is positive for COVID and they need to isolate themselves and watch for signs and symptoms of infection. So uh, contact tracing is, is really um, important to prevent ongoing uh, transmission of the virus. And I think there's an app now in South Dakota where people can um, download it and then it, it traces where you are and who you interact with in case somebody is infected along your journey that they can contact you and... I think mm-hmm. it's called Care app, Care 19 app, Care 19 mm-hmm. app to download. Um, just a couple questions about kind of turning, uh, turning this to, to your particular practice. How has this pandemic changed primary care practices for you and primary care practices in South Dakota? Well, talking to, you know, colleagues and just uh, with our own clinic, um, the amount of patients that are coming to the clinic has gone down significantly. Again, the um, the recommendation to, you know, put off um, unnecessary or elective things until um, the pandemic is, is through. Um, and video visits, uh, the use of telemedicine um, has increased substantially. And so um, the amount of uh, traffic and patients in the clinic has, has gone down. Um, everyone in the clinics um, are wearing masks, 
and really the masks are um, it's there to prevent transmission. Uh, but really, we don't know uh, if we're asymptomatic, could we be transmitting this to someone that's vulnerable? So um, at our clinic, we're wearing both uh, a face mask and um, a shield. So there's really double coverage. The um, clinics are probably cleaner than they've ever been before uh, as protocols have been implemented um, to try to keep uh, any possible contacts um, down to a very you know, bare minimum. And um, I really think that the embracing of telemedicine is um, here to stay. You know, there's been some, some telemedicine in the past, but um, one of the silver linings I think from this is um, the systems have really jumped on board and, and the payers have jumped on board in supporting telemedicine. And so uh, long-term, hopefully this will result in an increase in access um, especially to rural and frontier areas where maybe um, they aren't able to um, get in to see a physician or um, a specialist and now perhaps um, via telemedicine and e-visits or video visits they'll be able to do so. I'm glad you brought up rural medicine. Um, how do you, uh, in, what, in what ways is, is the rural healthcare system prepared to handle the peak, whether it's uh, between mid-May to mid-June, and what's what's still needed? Well, I would say in rural South Dakota particularly, we're still in phase one of this uh, pandemic, which is the mitigation phase, where we try to prevent um, an overwhelming number of infections, and it's the planning period where we look and see, do we have enough uh, PPE, the you know personal protective equipment, so um, gloves and masks and face shields and gowns? Um, do we have protocols in place so we can identify those folks that might be infected and isolate them to, again, prevent that transmission? I know there's many groups that are meeting um, from EMS to the healthcare coalitions across the state and the Department of Health to make sure that um, there's adequate supplies of PPE, sanitizer, um, other things, and a lot of folks have stepped up to try to help in that effort. There's a lot of people that are, are making um, the homemade masks and um, you know, dispensing those to everyone that may need them. Um, the Healthcare Coalition has worked with uh, even companies like Poet, and they were making sanitizers and then delivering that to long-term care facilities and, and clinics and um, ambulance services across the state. So um, I think that uh, you know, this, this planning period has tried to get everyone as prepared as they can be. And, and now uh, we wait and see you know, really what impact did our social distancing have and, and when exactly will that peak be. And, and I think that's, that's the challenging part is is uh, trying to be patient and um, and wait and see what happens. What lasting change do you envision that this pandemic will have on the healthcare system in the United States? Again, I think there'll probably be several changes, but one of the primary ones um, is the embracing of telemedicine. I think um, that was coming, but I think it 
it arrived quickly due to the necessity of uh, being able to still care for patients and meet their needs, uh, but doing it remotely to keep them as, as safe as they can be um, and, and not introduce infection. Um, other changes as far as, I've, I'm certain there's going to be other changes as far as uh, healthcare policy and, and protocols and, and those sort of things, but I think um, time will tell what, what those changes might be. Well, Dr. Anderson, I, I really appreciate you being with me today, being with us today. Uh, what word of advice or encouragement would you share with somebody who is, is worried about the ongoing situation that we find ourselves in? Well, I think if uh, you watch a lot of the news, it can, it can easily um, strike fear and anxiety um, because of some of the sensationalism uh, that sometimes can be part of of the news. Um, so I think taking a break from all of that stimuli and, and uh, watching all the all the information um, that the you know the news has to share with you is is uh, good for our mental health. Uh, and you know, keeping in mind that um, while this is a scary time, um, that uh, if you were to become infected, um, you do have a, a a very good chance of of coming out of this unscathed. We know a lot of folks are asymptomatic. Um, however, if you're if you're vulnerable uh, and you have other you know health conditions, the safest thing that you can do is um, try and you know maintain your health, um, eat right, get plenty of sleep, exercise if you're able, and continue to do those things, those social distancing things. Um, to keep you as, as safe as possible. Um, there are some, some lights at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we, we do know that there's been some criteria uh, for opening up America again that has, um, you know, been suggested by the CDC and, and by the federal government. Um, and criteria has been laid out of what that will look like. And so, I mean, there are some signs that we might be uh, turning the corner. And so, you know, having faith that this is going to, this too shall pass um, and uh, try to get outside a little bit every day. And, um, you know, I, I, for myself, what, what I've noticed um, is, is if you look for some of the positives, um, we didn't think that we would have, you know, our three youngest children all home together again for a period of time. And so, you know, being able to spend time with them um, is an unexpected, you know, positive result. And I think, uh, you know, focusing on the things that are important in our life, um, you know, we're always busy with, with commitments, but when that gets taken away from you, you know, focusing on your family and, and your faith and, and those kind of things, I think, um, can kind of give you a positive perspective that you need to, to make it through this time. Those are good words. I appreciate those words of, of encouragement. I think we all need um, to hear those things. 
uh, on a daily basis to uh, to be able to get through today and and hopefully as the days add up, uh, this will pass as you mentioned. This too shall pass. Well, Dr. Anderson, I know you're busy, and I appreciate your time uh, to talk to us today. And I thank you as a doctor for your continued service in the midst of all of this that's going on and to all the medical professionals who are, uh, who are continuing to serve and to care for, uh, to care for others. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, from all of us <laughs> who are listening. So, but, uh, I appreciate it. Well. Yeah. I appreciate your time, uh, this afternoon, Dr. Anderson, and, uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Jerry. You bet. Take care. Bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was Dr. Anderson from the uh, family practice of Sanford Health as well as the the dean of rural medicine at the uh, University of South Dakota Medical School. What wonderful insights and thoughts that she had for us on this day, and I hope you take them to heart and uh, and uh, take her word of encouragement and advice that this too shall pass and to focus on the positive things each day, knowing that we will get through this and we will get through this together. Thank you for tuning in today again on Table Talk. This has been Jerry, and I look forward to talking to you again around the table. Bye for now.